next met with Dr. Ed Kim to chat mainly about lung cancer. And to begin, he discussed a paper in non-small cell that ties into a prior study mentioned by Dr. Flaherty in melanoma, anti-PD-1. So there was a lot of buzz this year at ASCO about anti-PD-1, and it coincided with the publication of these papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. One of the studies that was presented in the non-small cell lung cancer subset was by Julie Bramer at the oral session. It was at a clinical science symposium, and this was of a drug, MDX-1106. There are several drugs out there, but they basically target program death one or PD-1, and this is an antibody that targets this receptor. It is something that is expressed by activated T cells. And frankly, we haven't had a lot of success in the past or optimism with these immunotherapies, unlike some of the other tumors, especially in lung cancer, because we just felt like they wouldn't kick in early enough or we wouldn't see any activity. The trial administered this drug every two weeks IV and enrolled a variety of solid tumors, including non-small cell lung cancer. 240 patients were enrolled and treated, and 75 of those were lung. And Julie reported at the ASCO meeting the results. There was about an 18% response rate in the subgroup. This was fascinating to many folks, as some of these patients were pretreated, And it lent a lot of confidence in that this type of therapy may cross boundaries across tumor types. They showed a consistent response rate over several types of tumors, and that fascinated people. Now, Neil, I don't think many people are going to jump up over an 18% response rate or something under 20%, especially with something that's supposed to be targeted. But this type of immune therapy lends credence that perhaps it is helping the immune system and activating it and making one maybe more susceptible to getting other treatments that may enhance its effect. What about the duration of response? You know, kind of heard from people participating in these trials that kind of like ipilimumab, you know, if you respond, it lasts a while with melanoma, I should say. Yes. The other attractiveness is that although some of these drugs take a long time to get started, so you don't see immediate responses. And that's why I think people were impressed to see a response. The duration of the response, activating the immune system, making it more susceptible to other therapies and sort of protecting it from itself, they were impressive. And so I think there was a lot of encouragement from what she showed, what the durations of response were, and that, in fact, lung cancer, as well as some other tumor types, may actually have a future with this drug. So in terms of mechanisms with this agent, it sort of reminds me of IPI and that sort of from a macro perspective, it inhibits immune inhibition. Correct. It really is one of these where it opens up the immune system. Our immune system is so good at protecting ourselves that it tends to protect cancers as well. And these are the terrorists that exist inside of us. And that's why it's so hard for us to find these guys out of the airports because they look like you and me, but their brains are doing something different. Well, these types of cells are protecting cancer cells as well as our own cells. And if we can actually find the ones that have this expression, sort of take off the inhibitory signal, then making things more susceptible, helping the immune system help itself fighting these cancers. What's the next step with this agent in terms of clinical trials? Yeah, I see it being twofold. One is, is that they do measure IHC expression for PD-1, and so that might be the targeted population to look at. It's going to be hard to find overall survival benefit these days. The trials done in second and third line lung cancer for overall survival are very difficult. 
I really think progression-free survival is going to be paramount, especially in drugs like this, because you will have people who have these durations of response. And I think it has a future, but it will be tough because the response rate is not something that we see with crizotinib or erlotinib in those driver mutation subgroups. So how about abstract 7508 by Dr. Shaw talking about my favorite new topic, ROS1? So ROS1 is a interesting gene rearrangement that's been found. It is a product of finding a targetable pathway, which was the ALK pathway, and now further digging deeper and finding this ROS1 rearrangement. And we tease Ross Kamage because we feel that he may have had something to do with the naming of this since he's been involved early on, but Ross is good sport about that. What they have found, and again, it is important to realize that this is a very rare rearrangement, maybe a little 1% to 2%. As we continue to study it more, we'll find more patients. But they reported on an experience of 14 patients who were ALK negative, the majority of them were ALK negative, and when treated with an ALK inhibitor, showed a robust response rate, 54 57% in that range. And these were very similar to crizotinib in ALK positive patients. So what has it done? It's expanded the population of 4% of those patients who have ALK rearrangements. You can now test for ROS1, and that's a little easier to test for than an ALK rearrangement is, and that will add another 1% to 2% of this population. So we've gone from 4 maybe to 5 to 6% in which patients who have either of these, the ALK translocation or the ROS1 rearrangement, to be susceptible to a drug like crizotinib. And I think that's the important aspect. And if we keep adding up the 1s and 2% and find some cross-sensitivity to other drugs, now we're making some progress. And again, we have one of these sort of oncogene addiction waterfall plots yeah, every waterfall plot we've seen with a sort of an oncogene-addicted pathway or a driver mutation pathway, as you've stated in the past before, Neil, looks very good. And these are not the types of waterfall plots we are used to seeing. We were amazed when we first saw patients who were treated with jafitinib and erlotinib, who we later found had mutations. Now we're finding things like ALK and ROS1, and we'll continue to find others. And that's the exciting part. And particularly that there's a drug out there that's approved, although it's not approved for this yet. How about abstract 7516 by Nasser Hanna looking at cetuximab and chemotherapy, an ECOG study? This study, and really any study with lung cancer and cetuximab, and we'll get to one that's more personal to me a little bit later, but was looked upon as something that may be hopeful. Cetuximab, we've seen, is an active drug in head and neck cancer, in colon cancer, and a very good radiosensitizer seems to combine well with chemotherapies and has approvals. And so it made sense to test this drug with a combination of chemotherapy in those patients who may not be bevacizumab eligible, because there are still quite a few patients out there that cannot receive BEB frontline. So this study was performed It looked at using a combination of carboplatin and paclitaxel with cetuximab, with this drug called IMCA12 or sexatumumab in combination or combined together. And as it was getting started, the problem was is that safety is what closed the trial down. And 
many people thought, well, maybe it was the A-12. Well, in fact, it was Cetuximab. There were six deaths in the Cetuximab arm, two in the A-12 arm, and five in the combination arm. So for some reason, and it's not fully understood why, there were safety concerns that emerged with early deaths in the study, and that's why it was closed down. It's unfortunate because many of us, myself included, have studied the insulin-like growth factor receptor pathway, and that's what IMCA12 targets. It's an antibody to IGF receptor. And so combination EGF-IGF strategies have been looked at preclinically and clinically and has looked upon as a potential good source of combination. But it's clear that cetuximab is going to have a difficult time in lung cancer and probably will not be something that we can use. A12 in this class of IGF compounds is also, I think, really going on its last legs with the results of figitumumab and others. There are some drugs out there that are TKIs, such as OSI-906, which still are being tested and are TKIs, not antibodies, so a little different in their activity. So there is still hope for the IGF pathway, but I think for these antibodies, and especially cetuximab, we're not looking at a bright future. So how about the SELECT trial that you presented looking at chemocetuximab? Yeah, we can be very brief on this one. SELECT was a long effort. We based it on a phase two in which we saw a 25% response rate with a combination of chemotherapy and cetuximab in a refractory population. We didn't see the PFS response or overall survival benefit that we anticipated or hoped for when we combined cetuximab with either pemetrexid or docetaxel in a second-line population. It was over 900 patients. What's particularly going to be intriguing is what you just stated is we are going to look at H-score. Uh, so we have the tissues on the majority of the patients, and so the H-scoring is going to be done very similar to what was done in the FLEX study, and we'll get that data hopefully in the next several months and be able to look at that and see if we see any differences. Short of seeing any difference in the H-score, I think this study has pretty much sealed the fate of cetuximab in non-small cell lung cancer, at least in this country, and I don't foresee that we'll be able to use it otherwise. So how about Abstract 7500? This is a study I was really interested in seeing, the Lux Lung 3 study. Lux Lung 3 was finally, I believe, a validation study of what most people did in practice or wanted to do in practice or maybe just needed one extra study to feel like they should do it. And this study was a very well-conducted study. It was looking at patients with classical mutations, deletion 19s or 21s, which were the majority of the population. And they looked at frontline untreated patients who would receive either a FATNIB, which was BIBW2992. It's an irreversible EGFR as well as RB2 and RB4 inhibitor uh, oral drug versus cisplatin pemetrexid. Clearly, the combination of choice as far as a doublet in adenocarcinomas, and mutation-positive patients are, for the most part, adenocarcinomas. These patients were then randomized, and the PFS difference was 11.1 versus 6.9 months, and in the common mutations, which is just the deletion 19s and 21s, 13.6 versus 6.9 response rate, more than doubled at 56 versus 23%. So it really did finally hit an endpoint that was pre-specified. The patients did better. There were a lot of comments about, gosh, 95% had diarrhea. Well, you know, I think if you or I were asked the question, if we experienced grade one or two diarrhea and we're not even on any type of treatment, the answer would probably be yes over a 30-day period of time. I mean, and in Miami, you might just have one bad dinner out one night uh, at some <laughs> uh, restaurant. In Houston, certainly I've had that as well. 
So I think it's a trade-off of side effects. You have to look at whether you want to deal with the grade 3 rash and diarrhea, which was not that significant, or you want to deal with the grade 3 toxicities that existed with the chemotherapy, which were neutropenia, fatigue, and other aspects. I think this is now something that Boehringer Ingerheim will file for approval and will finally give us a drug that is officially, via a trial, approved for frontline treatment of mutation-positive patients. And more importantly, hopefully it will spur doctors, especially in academics and in communities, to test routinely patients for EGFR mutations and ALK translocations, as a matter of fact, so that patients have options up front and know if they have these driver mutations so they can get the appropriate therapy. Yeah, I mean, they use some pretty effective chemotherapy in pemetrexed and cisplatinum. I guess it's kind of like the IPAS thing that was done with jafitinib, and also studies with erlotinib, uretac, et cetera. Any hints one way or the other? You mentioned it was irreversible as opposed to the other ones that are reversible. It wasn't a direct comparison, but any hints whether it's any different than these others? You know, these irreversible inhibitors have a little more side effects, and that's something that's been generally known, and that's certainly one of the drawbacks. I think this type of trial in which you are selecting a patient population with driver mutations, whether it's jafitinib or lotinib, anything that just barely hits that EGFR receptor is going to be highly sensitive. As you know, and you've reported this on several other editions of your meetings, there are other studies ongoing with afatinib, looking at it to overcome resistance to EGFR inhibitors, and the combination with cetuximab and afatinib has been particularly intriguing with this. So irreversible inhibitors such as afatinib, I think, offer a high potency in a driver mutation population, but also may help overcome resistance in some of these populations as well. I guess, you know, it looks like a long time ago. It was last year we saw a fatnib cetuximab, which is kind of interesting there. I hope they can get the cetuximab next year to run a trial to see if that combination does, in fact, work based on the early phase two data. Based on what you know right now, if a fatnib were available, would you use it and in what situations? I think I would go by the indication. The indication will be frontline mutation positive. That is where I would enact it and try to use it. The biggest problem for docs, frankly, is access. Neil, we just we don't like writing prescriptions and waiting to see if it's going to take a week to 10 days to get approved, and then the patient has to pay a lot of money out of pocket. That has been the real problem. And I hope that now with official approvals and indications like this, that if you're using it appropriately, not based on any guideline like NCCN, which has been very proactive and ASCO has been very proactive about putting EGFR mutation early on and using a drug like erlotinib, now carriers and co-payers, they cannot have an excuse. There is now an official indication. The drug is approved there. I hope that patients have higher access to it. So if it's easier for me to get one than the other, that's what I'll use. So maybe you can briefly comment on Abstract 7520, kind of same issue, the so-called optimal trial. So optimal was very similar. It's similar to some of the trials that you've mentioned in the past, looking again at an Asian population of folks, again, in an EGFR mutation positive folks. And again, we see differences in 
progression-free survival. We see differences in response rate whenever we compare these TKIs to chemotherapy. And overall survival, surprisingly, doesn't show much difference because these patients all get crossed over. And so that washes out, similar to what we saw in IPASS and URTAC that you both mentioned. So again, I think this is another one of these trials that shows that TKIs such as erlotinib are preferred based on their PFS and response rate in frontline patients. How about the paper by Jack West looking at a couple phase two SWOG studies, 75-17? So Jack presented two studies, S0635 and S0636. One of these was a combination of erlotinib and bevacizumab. This is a combination that's been studied in multiple settings, including the beta study and in the maintenance setting and other aspects. One of these studies, the SWOG studies, looked at never smokers, and that was the 3-6 study. And one looked at bronchoalveolar carcinoma. Again, that was the 3-5 study. And what he showed was is that these were non-comparative populations and that there was an intriguing two-year progression-free survival and response rates were also intriguing. And so what does that mean? Well, I think these drugs have interesting activity. I think we're not going to base a lot of our treatment these days on smoking status or on histology, unless it's for safety or efficacy concerns, such as pemetrexid or bevacizumab, and especially in these populations. And these studies, mind you, were started before routine genotype testing was done, etc. But I really think that a study like this would benefit a lot more by getting the molecular markers, and that's what they're doing. They're pulling the tissue, they're going to look at the markers, and I think that's really where the value is going to be. Do I think that bevacizumab or erlotinib is going to be a combination that we move forward with? No, it's already been tested in phase three. It's not something that's going to be filed. Any comments on Rogerio Lillenbaum's paper 7506, looking at patients with performance status of two? So I have to applaud Rogerio for engaging the Brazilian oncologists and being able to run a very nice study throughout their country, including one ex-Brazil country. And so I think it brings in another group that will help contribute to the overall research and literature for non-small cell lung cancer. He has reported PS2 patients and elderly patient studies, and so he is very experienced at this. I think it revealed pretty much what most of us feel, is that We're not really sure what a PS2 patient is. We're not sure what an elderly patient is. But we do know that many of these patients can tolerate doublet therapy. And so the fact that PS2 patients benefited more from a combination of carboplatin and pemetrexid, I don't think comes to much of a surprise to anyone. I think the new 70 is becoming the new 80. And so we see these better performance status patients, these more fit patients, I think we also are going to move away, frankly, Neil, from classifying people from PS2 to elderly. I mean, frankly, if you knew a patient was PS3 and was 79 years old but had an EGFR mutation, guess what they're going to get? They're going to get erlotinib. So if we identify the right driver mutation and have high-sensitivity drugs, I don't think these things will factor very much into our clinical decision-making. And you can already see that how we've done that with small cell. 
with small cell, we have patients who are admitted to the hospital who have high tumor burden, and we give them platinum and etoposide with the hopes of having that great response and turning them around. And, you know, it's a lymphoma strategy that's been done in the past and other tumor types. So I really think that we're going to move away from this whole performance status and elderly subclassification, and we're going to define based on mutations and driver oncogenic signals. So I was very interested in the other select study that was presented looking at the issue of adjuvant EGFR-TKI, in this case, or latinib in patients with EGFR mutations. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Neil, because the other one was my select study. And I know. so, you know, it, it kind of hurts me when you say that a little <laughs> bit, but I understand. What can I say? I'm, I'm a mutation kind of guy. <laughs> I guess if I had H score, you would have been more interested uh, with that. Uh, <laughs> Well, so this select study, and I have to say that we coined our name first before these guys did, was a much smaller study. It was only 36 patients. They looked at early-stage lung cancer patients who had been resected, and if they had EGFR mutations, they attempted, and I say attempted, to give them erlotinib at 150 milligrams daily for two years. And that was difficult, and most of us thought it would be. They did report that they had a two-year disease-free survival of 94%. Again, there are several theories behind this number. Is it that you actually gave treatment and that's why they are disease-free for so long? Is it because that EGFR mutation positive patients have just a better overall prognosis and that's why they're this long? Again, there were only a small amount of patients who were stage 2 or stage 3, and the majority, 53%, were stage 1. So they have expanded to 100 total patients. They're going to try and do this better. But clearly, a randomized study is being begged in a population like this. And frankly, you know, we just can't do a randomized study like this until we, A, diagnose more people in early stage, and B, make routine mutation testing something very common. I got to say, I don't really understand why we can't do a phase three trial like now. I mean, it's such an obvious study. It's pretty straightforward. Why can't we do it? I'm totally supportive of your ideal on this and your desire. It's just been exceptionally difficult for whatever reason it is to enroll patients. Now, Radiant has changed that. Radiant, which was adjuvant or lotnib, but not in mutation positive patients, enrolled very quickly. The ECOG study, 1505, has been much slower with bevacizumab for a year afterwards. So I agree. I think if we could organize people, mobilize them, and if this was the central question that was really wanted to be asked, it could be done. But I can tell you it's been very challenging to study this early stage population. Got to ask the old question of, do you ever use an EGFR-TKI outside a trial setting? Have you done it with a patient with a mutation? I have done it once, and the patient had such profound side effects to low dose that I ended up stopping it after about three or four months. I don't know if it benefited them. Yeah, there was a little, wasn't all that easy. I think even in this study, 36 patients to get people through two years. That is an interesting issue. What we have observed in some of our early stage studies, both in lung and in head and neck, is that there's in these especially sensitive populations, they seem to have, especially the early stage populations, more side effects than the late stage. And I don't know, that's just a personal observation, but I tend to see that. We don't see too many papers on small cell. Any comments on SWOG 0802, 
looking at the agent that we've been talking a lot about recently in colon cancer, the VEGF trap of Flibercept. So Flibercept was not something that has been pursued or seen a lot of activity in non-small cell lung cancer. Ovarian and colon were originally looked at, and there is now a combination with topotecan in small cell. And what was presented through this SWOG study showed that there was actually an improvement in three-month PFS. We did see increased disease control, increased overall response, although modest, and certainly an increased three-month progression-free survival. So what does that mean? Well, there may be some activity here. I think many people are just very gun-shy when it comes to especially second-line small cell lung cancer. With the amrubicin experience from last year, which many people had high hopes on, it's just been a wasteland for targeted therapies. But the optimist would say it is the biggest growth potential and lowest hanging fruit. And when you consider that there's still 15 to 20% of the population of lung cancer is small cell, this is certainly an area of unmet need. And I would support moving forward with something like this. But again, with caution, the numbers, although were positive, they were not very robust. So what about head and neck cancer? Anything exciting this year at ASCO? The head and neck session overall this year was less than exciting. There were trials that many people had anticipated and were hopeful about seeing, and probably the DECIDE study was one of those. This was a study that was going to test or did test induction chemotherapy versus concurrent. And after Marshall Posner had published the data and TPF became an induction regimen, many people wanted to ask the question, do you need induction? Can you just get away with concurrent? Because as you know, that study compared two different induction regimens and didn't really compare it versus the standard of cisplatin with RT versus induction followed by concurrent. Decide did not enroll fully, and that was one of the problems. It also didn't show the benefits of induction. Now, the University of Chicago group uses their own regimen, which uses hydroxyurea and is a little more dose-intense. But the bottom line is, is that it didn't show benefits one way or another. And so we're still left at the end of the day saying, well, you could actually choose one or the other, use induction or not. And I don't think it really did much to help decide the playing field. The other study that was looked at was called Paradigm. And the Paradigm study was presented by Robert Haddad. Again, this was to be built off of the original docetaxel induction study, looking at, again, induction TPF followed by concurrent chemoradiation versus high-dose cisplatin with RT. The problem with Paradigm was also that it did not accrue well and was halted due to accrual. So the wind was taken out of our sails a little bit before these trials were even presented because they just didn't enroll as well as they wanted to. And number two was is that we didn't see any big differences in results. And so I think it again takes us back to the drawing board that there are a lot of ways that you can treat patients. And we will eventually be able to figure out who needs high-dose induction and who can just go straight to concurrent chemoradiation. The response rates were robust for both, and the survivals were robust for both as well. But it's going to come down to looking at other things, such as HPV status, such as molecular markers that we are just now starting to find in head and neck cancers. And, and really, that's going to be the direction.